morning, beloved. It is good to gather, to gather together and worship our King. Um, so if you will, turn in your copy of Scripture to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be picking up where we left off last week with verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, while you're turning there, um, just kind of enter into a memory of mine as my wife and I went to Ireland a few years back. Um, it was a big deal, and so we're, we're here in Ireland, and we actually had a guy who was driving us, which I loved. Um, when I'm driving, I'm probably not the best driver in the world, and so I have to pay attention to what I'm doing, and so I, get, I miss so much, but we had a guy driving, and that was just amazing for me, because I could just be in the moment and see everything as we're driving through. And so we're going through Northern Ireland, and if you know anything about Ireland's history, um, it's rather tragic. It's just one dark season after another, and so a lot of that has played out in so much of who they are as a people, but a lot of um, what has happened, especially in Northern Ireland, is this conflict that escalates in moments of violence um, to where different Irishmen would actually be trying to kill each other, and these would be because of political and religious differences, and a lot of that comes down to whether their um, kind of their, your union or their sense of national identity is with the UK or not, and so forth. So there's all this stuff, but it's also religious, and that it's a lot of Protestants and Catholics kind of at odds with each other. And so we're hearing the, the drivers telling us a lot about the history of that and how it would blow up into these moments of real violence, gunfights, bombings, things like that. And we would go around, we'd see a statue and a mural commemorating this and that. And as we get into different neighborhoods, we start to see what are actually called the peace lines. You have peace lines in Belfast, Ireland. And these peace lines is a nice way of saying hostility walls. Like they're walls to keep out and separate a Protestant neighborhood from a Catholic neighborhood and things like that. And as we're driving along, a lot of them are actually really cool because there's a lot of graffiti and some really talented people have made them look amazing. There's this beautiful art all over the place. And so you're kind of in this weird moment of like, I hear the history of how awful this has been, how it's become so violent, but they've made a lot of progress. There's still some tension. He's saying there's tension and everything. He's telling us stories of things that have happened even recently, and yet I'm seeing this really cool artwork, and I'm like, well, it's almost like they've just kind of taken this, this thing of the past and turned it into something that's actually really cool and captivating now, and so it feels like we're making some progress. And so as we're moving more and more into this neighborhood, the driver tells us, he's like, we're going to make a turn here shortly, and there's an empty lot. And um, just one of the ways that you can know that this is still a real thing, there's still a real division here, is that the people, anything that's burnable, they will not give to the landfill. They make their own on this empty lot, and they stack it up, this massive pile, and they put an effigy of the Pope at the top of it and light it on fire. Like, that's wild. And so he's like, you're about to see it, we're about to turn. And we go and we make the turn, and there's an empty lot. There's nothing in it. And the driver is like, this is amazing. Like, this is real progress. They have finally put a stop to this. I haven't been here in a few months. They have finally put a stop to this. This is like history in the making. They have finally moved beyond this conflict, this division, and they're no longer doing this incredibly offensive thing. That's so good. And we turn another corner, and they had just moved it to another lot. And I kid you not, it is stories tall of pallets and wooden boxes, cardboard boxes, just everything that you can possibly know is going to combust. And at the top of it is an effigy of the Pope. And they are ready to light this thing and watch the biggest bonfire I could ever dream of. And you realize, like, wow, it's still real. There's still that deep-seated hate, that deep-seated tension that divides these people. 
And it's just crazy to think it's so easy for us to divide. And we come to a text today that's probably going to make a lot of us uncomfortable. As we continue in this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, um, today he turns to some division. There's some deep-seated division here. There's some animosity between groups. And he calls it out bluntly as it has no place here in the gospel. The gospel undoes all of this. And yet, we still find ourselves, and whether this is about racism or about differences of political ideology or religious ideology, just so many things that is so easy to divide. Have you ever thought about the fact that, like, you cannot choose your friends, but you choose your enemies? Like, I don't know if I truly, fully agree with that, but there's so much truth in that sentiment. Like, your friends are just who you happen to be similar to. And like, oh, we get along, we have fun with this, and things like that. But then your enemies have an act of choice to not engage lovingly with that. And so what is this, this easiness, this, this simplicity of what it is to divide and say, no, there's a wall here. And so as we come into this, we're going to be covering the rest of chapter 2, starting in verse 11. So 11 to 22, we're going to break this up into three um, sections. This is how it is often viewed, um, but different things that are being highlighted in each. So we'll start with verse 11. So read with me in your copy of Scripture. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, and know as we start into this, we're on the heels of what is one of the most beautiful unpackings of this is the gospel. It is entirely grace. You cannot earn it. You did not deserve it. It's not of works, but it's for works. Because remember, you're saved by grace through faith, not of works. So you cannot boast. Our boasting is only in the Lord. And yet the Lord who saved us by grace through faith, is I saved you as my workmanship, my masterpiece, for good works that I prepared for you to walk in. And so now he's called you his workmanship. He says, you have been saved to do good things for the glory of God. And now look what he says just after that. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul changes here. This is the first moment in this letter as we're reading through it. So now he zeroes in on a particular audience. Hey, you. Remember, at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. What is a Gentile? There's, there's two categories here. And we see this throughout the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. You are a Jew or a Gentile. A Jew is to be of an actual race or ethnic group. Um, these are the Hebrew people. They come be, become the nation of Israel. These are the people who would trace their ancestry back to Abraham or Abram as he was called out of the land of Ur. And God gives them this covenant. says, I'm going to bless the nations through your seed. But you will be a nation, the father of a nation. And your, your, your descendants are going to be innumerable like the stars in the heavens and the sand. When you go to the beach, like try to count it. That's how big you're going to become. And so that people group, they are the Jews. It's an actual ethnic group. And anyone who is not a Jew is a Gentile. And so the Jews are the recipients of the covenants of promise. They're the ones that are promised the Messiah will come through you. Salvation, the blessing to all nations actually comes through this one nation. This is a called out people of God. They are given the law, the Mosaic law, to say this is going to distinguish you. You will be different. You'll be set apart from all the others they have a very special relationship with God. 
And so the Jews have all of this, and then there are the Gentiles. You should acknowledge the distinction. And let's go ahead and make some application. When there are differences and there's any kind of division, it does not help to not acknowledge the distinction. We should start with saying there are differences, and that is okay to acknowledge. It's actually necessary to acknowledge there are differences. If we ignore that and like the, the joke goes, I see no color, things like that, like, no, that's, that's silly. Don't be colorful. Like we can see differences and that can be okay. But in this, we see the differences between a Jew and a Gentile. It largely comes down to there's this idea of circumcision. And they, and they call each other such, you were the uncircumcised Gentiles and you were the circumcised you Jews. And so if you were circumcised or not circumcised, that is a way of telling the world it's this outward sign. We won't go into the biology and what it actually is, but there's a physical mark that would outwardly show that you are a Jew or not a Jew. The Jews were to be circumcised as an outward appearance, a sign of a covenant, that something is to be cut off, as in you are to be cut off from the world, to be separate, to be marked as God's own. That something that can lead to greater contamination and so forth is to just be done away with. And you are to be holy to the Lord. The sign of the covenant. And it says, I love the, the, the geographical language, the spatial language that's used, that the Gentiles were far away, removed from God and these covenants of promise. They were far away without Christ. How sad is that? The distance between Gentiles and God compared to the Jews who received these covenants of promise should actually humble us as largely Gentiles. Um, and he's addressing this to Gentiles in this portion of the letter. He's saying, hey, Gentiles, don't forget it's easy for you to forget who you were and who they were. Remember who they were. They were actually closer. They received the covenants of wrong. So be humble. Be humble in how we view this. See the distance. Um, but really, do you know what it is to be without hope? To be without God? And I would say, even you believer, follower of Jesus, it's helpful for us to actually take a step back and think what would life be like without the hope that we have? without the hope of the new covenant, without the gospel, without God himself being with us. What hope is there in this life? And so remember, Gentiles, you were so far from this. Far from hope, without hope, without God. Or really, what is worth living for if we have no hope, if we have no God? Is this really all that life is? this rat race to acquire as much as we can, to be esteemed as highly as possible, to impress others, to crank up my follower count, to have a lot of attaboys or whatever it is. Like, what are you actually striving for? And if you take hope out of the equation and it's just this, then what do you have? And so we must be mindful of what it was like what our life was like before Christ, before we encountered his saving grace and knew the love of God and the treasure that is God himself and he gives us that treasure, he gives us himself. We should remember what that was like and that will actually move us to so much compassion for those who do not yet know him. It will help so much with the tensions of division. I love how he says that. So you're remembering the stuff, but then 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
Again, the spatial language. You were far away. You were so far away, but you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is relational language now, not just spatial. That because of the blood of Christ, you have been brought into hope. You have been brought into life everlasting. That Jesus, as he dies on the cross, he's, he's already said this the night before as he's holding the cup of blessing, this cup of wine. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. That the shed blood of Jesus, like all the blood that would be shed in the temples of all the animal sacrifices, this would be the once final for all sacrifice where blood would be shed. And we see over and over, read the law, read Leviticus. It's great fun reading. It really is actually. Like dive into it. But how often does it talk about body fluids, in particular blood? Because it is sacred. It is our life. Yet the life of the eternal son of God who became man, Jesus, his blood was spilt for us. That's weird. Like if you, if you walk into a room and you see somebody on the floor not moving and there's blood everywhere, it should disturb you. When your child runs to you and they're screaming and crying, you're like, okay, what are you, are you okay, are you okay? And then you see a bunch of blood, your heart rate should pick up. Seeing blood is not normal and okay. It has an effect on us and it rightly should. Like the early Christians were thought to be such weirdos and were accused of all kinds of weird things like cannibalism. But as they talked about feasting on the body and blood of Jesus and the surrounding world thought, you are gross, you're weird. And that's a right assessment because they don't understand what we mean by that. That the blood of Jesus, which should unnerve us, it was shed for us. It brought us back to God. That we have been washed in the blood, which is a super weird graphic way to think that that's what cleansed me. But it is. His sinless, perfect sacrifice, his shed blood has brought us to God, has brought us to God. So now, this section is what I would say is the statement of the union. He's saying, this is the union. So acknowledge the distinction, but now see this union. That because for both of us, those who are already a little closer, who are a little more near, and those who are far away, what is it that brings us together? The blood of Christ has brought us near. And now the next part, verse 14 through 18. He says, for he is our peace. So pronoun there, he, who is that talking about? Go back to 13, it's Jesus Jesus. So for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God and one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is the explanation of the union. That again, what is it that brings those who are close and those who are far? To be close is not to be there. It's just to be close. And to be far is not to be there either. But what is it that brought both to the place to be back with God? is Jesus, the one who has made us at peace, the one who is our peace, it says. He is our peace. This is reconciliation for those who are estranged from God. But he says, it doesn't just stop there. It's not just your vertical relationship has been restored. You've been reconciled to God. It's also that because of that reconciliation to God, it now flows out horizontally. You've also been reconciled to man. 
It's from God to man, but then from man to man. The Jews and the Gentiles brought together in this peace that he is our peace. And you have to see that biblical peace is not what we often think of as peace. Often when I think of like, man, I'm just really hoping for a peaceful week. Like, it'd be great if I had a peaceful week. You know what that's like in my mind? I don't get any notes home from school because my kids are doing great. There's no problems there. I come home. Like, there's nothing broken in the house for me to fix. And like, there's that's what it is, is there's not a problem. There's not a problem. There's not a problem, and so I have peace. Do you know that's not biblical peace? Biblical peace, this Hebrew idea going back, is shalom. It's not just the absence of problems. It's the presence of the positive. It's flourishing. It's, it's the beauty of being together. It's all these things that go so much beyond just the absence of hostility. It's also acceptance. That instead of animosity, it's not just like, oh, no, we're cool, we're neutral. It's actually friendship. And so he's saying, hey, this division here. No, 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 the gospel says no more division. And and beyond just like taking out the problems of how you viewed each other, it's actually like you engage as you're in love with each other. You're friends. There's deep affection for each other. the, The dividing wall of hostility has been removed. He's taken it out. And what is this dividing wall of hostility? I'm convinced in this context, he's speaking of this, this metaphorical wall that caused the separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. That metaphorical wall is based on the law and adherence to the law. That the law actually said, you're not to eat with a Gentile or you become unclean. You're not to do all these different things. And so it actually just created kind of almost a natural division there. It became this wall. And so the, if you actually understood the law, you would realize that you're always to be inviting the outsider in. And yet, what they could do is just view it in such a legalistic way and misinterpret it that it just created this hostility that we Jews are clean. You Gentiles are unclean. And so there's a wall between us. We don't interact with you. And so it became condescending. They would look down on the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, imagine that. Hey, they're always looking down on me. Am I going to like them? No. Who are you on your holy high horse? So pious. (laughs) And so there becomes this division, this wall of hostility, that both sides viewing the other with hostility. And so much so, this metaphorical wall, um, it is thought Josephus, actually a historian, a Jewish historian, he writes about how um, there was actually the tent, the, in the temple, there's the court of Gentiles and the court of Jews. And there's a wall between the two. That the Gentiles were not to come past the wall of the Jews. And, and this wall of hostility, there's actually a historical record of a sign that was posted there that under threat of death, a Gentile was not to pass. And so the metaphorical wall actually becomes a literal wall in the temple. This hostility, and yet it says that Jesus has become our peace and taken down this dividing wall of hostility. The law, the adherence, and the disdain from both sides. The symptom is animosity from the Jews and the Gentiles, and yet the cause is the law. And so what did Jesus do with the law? Remember, Jesus came, Sermon on the Mount, most famous sermon, and he's like, you've heard it said, and he quotes part of the law. He says, but I say to you, is he saying that the law was wrong? No. He's saying you've missed the heart of it as we would press it further and help us to rightly see it. And he, and he comes to this point where he says, I did not come to abolish the law or to stop it. I came to fulfill it. And so the hostility, the animosity that comes from the law and adherence to it that could create this division, Jesus didn't come to say like, well, no more law. 
No, he came to say, I fulfilled the law. And so the thing that was estranging us is no longer effective, but only now the law that reconciles us stands. Because Jesus fulfilled the law for us. And so now we live in this new covenant, the law of Christ, which is love and expression of love. And so all of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, they still stand. You still should not murder each other. You should not steal from each other. All these things. But it's because of the law of Christ, this law of love. And so all of the law and what it was really pointing towards is fulfilled in Christ. And so now we continue. What we know of the law, what we live under in the law, is only going to reconcile us instead of divide us. It calls us to love each other. How are these two made into one? This law brought to no effect? Again, because it was fulfilled in Christ, his sacrifice is full, his atonement for us. And so now we can experience peace. It says that he is our peace. And we have to ask the question, why were we not at peace? And maybe you don't know Christ today. Maybe you would not call yourself a Christian. You don't know what you believe about any of this. And I would encourage you to look at your life. Do you have peace? A Christian, do you have peace? Do you actually experience peace? And why not if you do not? What is it that creates the hostility inside of us? Why were we not at peace? Is it fear? So many of the things that that take away the peace and thus create the divisions and the hostility, I think so much of it comes back to just fear. That fear is this kind of base human experience. We know what it is to be scared. And it's so easy to be scared of what we do not know. It's the unknown. It's the other. It's the things that are different. The things that I don't No, they drive me to fear. And that fear drives me to hostility and this otherness, this separation. But what does the gospel do? The gospel addresses all of my fears. It addresses all of your fears. The gospel is that God so loves us that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If this is the gospel, that a God who is right and just to condemn us for all of eternity because of our rebellion against him, instead, in grace and mercy, he says, I love you, and I'm going to make this right myself at my own cost. He sends his son to die for us, to take our place, dying the death that you and I deserve on a cross. Having lived with no sin, he becomes sin and gives us his very righteousness. It says, turn from your sin. Confess you are a sinner. Confess him as Lord. Trust him for salvation. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead because he didn't stay dead. He rose again victorious over it all. The sacrifice was enough. This is our peace. This is all because you are loved. And we harp on this so much. The church is named beloved or beloved because we want to constantly be reminded this is our hope. This is our peace that God loves us. Because we are loved. And what does love do? The Apostle John tells us explicitly, love drives out fear. When you know how loved you are, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be scared. You're loved. Love drives out fear. 
when we speak of divisions and so forth, because of our context here in America, and especially the South, even though Florida's not really the South, I'm convinced. But you can't help it. Like, it's our history. This deep-seated racism that's primarily between whites and blacks. And so we have to learn to love and listen to each other. And we're still in progress with that. And we have to be honest about that. And as we listen, I love um, one of the the civil rights leaders who's also a pastor, a preacher, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, He famously said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. We don't have to be afraid because we are loved. And that love will drive out the fear. The love will drive out the hate. This is the explanation of the union. And so now we turn to the consequence of the union. Look at verse 19 with me. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling and the spirit. This is the consequence of our union. That we are no longer foreigners. Do you know the beauty of that? I don't, maybe I know that I can be super insecure, but uh, we live here in Florida, um, Orlando, Florida, like the tourism capital of the world. And so we drive around and there's, there's tags on these cars that tell you what state that tag comes from. And so it's kind of a game, like you drive around and you're like, we got to collect all 50 states. Let's see who gets the highest number from here to there. Let's see how many different states we can find. Do you ever play the name game, the plate game? Yeah, is this only me? Are you with me? All right. It was fun. And we live in a place where the game works great because there are people from all over the country that are here. And so we play this, we know this. And so um, my wife and I, another big trip that we took in our marriage was we went to Hawaii. You know, Hawaii is an island, a series of islands. And so we get to Hawaii and I, maybe because I live in the tourism capital of the world, I hate to look like a tourist. It's just me. I, I don't want to go somewhere and look like a tourist. I want to, I want to blend in. I don't want to stand out. Like, I just want to look the part, so to speak. And so we're in Hawaii, and um, we, have, we have actually, like, all the rental companies have sold out. Like, they had no cars available. It was astronomical if we were going to get anything. It was like, we could rent a Lexus for $400 a day. I was like, yeah, not in our bank. Um, but we, we used the app Toro, and we, we got a Jeep. It was awesome. So much fun to drive. But that meant that we're actually renting a private individual's personal vehicle. And my favorite thing about that was there would be nothing about that vehicle that would say, I'm not from here. And so we get there and it's like, I'm checking out like, Hawaii tag plate, this is great. Like, nobody's going to be like, oh, stupid tourist doesn't know how to drive. Like, I'm going to look like a local. This is great. And we started driving and you know what I noticed immediately? It's an island. Every tag is Hawaii. Like, nobody drives there from out of state. I thought, well, that's pretty beautiful. Coming from Florida, where most of the vehicles are such a hodgepodge of different states. Did you see what the gospel does? That we all have a home state tag. You're no longer a foreigner. You're right at home. You belong here. And you can have such confidence in that that you can actually invite the outsider. Like, hey, you need a home plate tag too. And we've got more than we can give away. So let's just give them away. And we invite them in. We don't have to be afraid. 
this, this picture, he continues on. It's, it's God's household. You're being built together into God's household. God's household, a building in the process of being constructed, that it's being built right now, and we're invited into that, that he's building us into something. I love, it's the foundation is the apostles and the prophets, and that's tied to this idea of fellow citizens. You're fellow citizens with the saints of all time. Going back to the, the prophets and what they're all pointing to Jesus and the apostles who are saying, yes, Jesus, and every bit of it, all of it is pointing, this is the foundation, it's all here. And now we're brought in together as fellow citizens in this household that's being built. As we're being built into this household, the foundation is the apostles and prophets all pointing to the gospel and Jesus is the cornerstone. Have you been to a cornerstone celebration? There actually was a festival here in Central Florida called that. I don't mean that. Um, what I'm referring to is like a building is constructed and they're like, oh, big commemoration service. We're going we're gonna to put in the cornerstone and often it will have like an inscription of major donors or things like that, people who contributed, things like that. And that is not what this is. Because in our context, the way that we build buildings now, that's like the last thing that goes and we call it the cornerstone. In the ancient world, the cornerstone is the first stone that is set on the foundation. And that stone is set in such a way that every other stone, every other element of the construction is going to be in reference to that. It sets the lines. It is establishing the whole thing. This is Jesus to us. And so this is not a call to pluralism. It's not just saying like, everyone and everything is all okay. It's like, no, it's all to be aligned to Christ. He's the cornerstone. It all is to align to him. And yet, as we all look to him, what does that point us to? That we're loved and that we're to welcome others in. That he has taken down the wall of hostility. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to have hostility or animosity towards others. We can live generously. We can live with open arms and hands and love each other. Because he's building something. He's building a house for himself. God's household is where he will dwell. God will dwell in this temple. The holy temple and the Lord, it's us being built together to be God's dwelling. And so you've got to read that and know the context that he's speaking to Gentiles who live in Ephesus. And he's speaking to Jews who live in Ephesus. The Jews would remember, hey, the temple of God, big, fancy structure, not as cool as it used to be, but you know, it's there and it's, and it's up and coming. It's in Jerusalem. This is where God dwells. But then, but then we learn the gospel, we believe the gospel, and, and they're saying that like God actually dwells with us. The temple veil was torn in two, and so God is not limited to the holy of holies. Like His presence is out and among us. Like Christ removed this barrier. But they still in their minds would be thinking like so much of like God's dwelling place, God's temple. Okay, I remember that thing in Jerusalem. And then the Gentiles also now, believing the gospel and hearing these things, but in their context, in their minds, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis, massive, beautiful structure. And here's Paul saying, no, 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 no. You, people, you guys, you are the temple being built into God's own dwelling. That you don't look at that fancy structure here or there. It's like, no, no. This is the beautiful structure. This is God's household. Us, his followers. So bottom line, Jesus brought us together. He brought us together. Jesus brought us together. And we have to see that. But then we have to be honest about the fact that there's still division. 
There's still division. We can divide over so many things. And it's so tragic when you read Jesus' high priestly prayer in the garden. As he's having a full-on panic attack, he's sweating blood. He knows the pain that is about to come, the torment he's about to endure for us. And yet it says that it was for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So he's living in that tension. And you know what he's praying so much? Father, let them be united. United like I'm united with you. Our unity is at the top of his mind as he's going to the cross. That's so convicting when I see so much division still. I grew up in a church, and before I tell you this story, I want you to know that the church has changed a lot, and it's beautiful. But when I grew up in the church, I remember at a very young age, looking around and thinking, this doesn't look like school. There's only white people here. And I asked my grandmother, why are there no colored people here? And she kind of stuttered and didn't know what to say. She took me to a deacon and sat me down. I remember it was kind of like a hush-hush conversation. We'll wait till everyone else is out of the room. She's like, go ahead and ask him. I said, I want to know why there aren't any colored people here. And he looked at me and he said, there's a place for them, just like there's a place for us. And even at such a young age, I thought, that's weird. You know that that is not true. There's a place for all of us. The wall of hostility has been brought down. And you compare that statement, and I love him, and I don't want anyone to think less of that church or that person, because we are all being sanctified by God. But to compare that statement with the vision of heaven that John received, when he says, after this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. That in heaven, where God's will is uncontested, there are people still distinct from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and yet all clothed in white together, singing and shouting and worship. And so we don't, we don't want, we don't want worship that looks the same. God does not want worship that looks the same. He created and he celebrates diversity and so should we. And so we have to see this. And, and again, it begs the question, like, well, how do we accomplish this? I'm just so tired of the talks about racism and things like that, Kevin. What do we actually do? And it's actually quite simple and yet incredibly difficult. But it comes down to this. Matthew 22, 37 and 39. Jesus says, well, in response to what, what is the greatest command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The most important thing for us to do as followers of Jesus is not to obsess over diversity and create kind of quotas for like, we've got to be this diverse or anything like that. It's for us to just love God. Paramount is love God. Love him with everything you are. Love him. Absolutely love him. See the beauty of him. Love him. And he says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So our love is actually tied to this obedience that is an outflow of our love. And so we love him and we keep his commands. And what is a command there? 
It's love him, but then love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. And how do we love our neighbor? As ourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself. How easy and how practical can we take some things from that? To love our neighbor as ourselves. And this goes so much. There was a book that hugely shaped me when I was in college. Uh, My undergraduate degree, I studied a lot about racism, particularly in the American South. And there was a book that so shaped me where, and, and please, like, there, this would be super inappropriate in our day and age, um, but there was a white professor who decided he really wanted to understand what it was like to be black. And so he actually went to a doctor, got these skin coloring creams and things, and he spent weeks changing his diet and doing different things, rubbing these things on him to where he would have the appearance of being black, and then he just traveled through the American South and journaled about it. And his reflections on the way he was treated, the way that just different expectations were laid on him and everything, and how even as a doctorate-holding person, a highly intellectual person, how much that affected him, just to hear the way that people assume things about him and so forth. And what did he do in that? He decided to step into someone else's shoes. Is to see what would life be like from their perspective? If I could step out from behind my egocentric or ethnocentric lens and say, what would it be like to live from their place? And the way that that can change things, to open your eyes to things, is that not to love your neighbor as yourself? If you're going to love them like you love yourself, you have to step into their position and see things from their place. This is not just a race thing. This is anyone. Who is my neighbor? Who do I do this? And Jesus actually was asked that question. It ties so beautifully together. One guy comes up to Jesus at one point. He's like, hey, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, you know the law? And the guy actually quotes what Jesus said was the most important of the commands. Is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, you know it. And the guy trying to trip Jesus up, he's like, well, who's my neighbor? You know what Jesus says? It's this famous parable of the Good Samaritan. He says, well, there's this day. This, this guy, this Jew, he's walking along between Jerusalem and Jericho. It's kind of a sketchy route. These, these robbers were known for like hiding in the crags and the rocks and so forth, and they jump out on small parties. And this guy is in isolation. He's all alone. Easy target. These guys jump out, beat the mess out of him, leave him for dead. They've taken everything he has. Guy's there, unconscious on the side of the road. And here comes a priest. You think, priest, it's like a pastor. He's got to be full of compassion. It's the best person to show up in this moment. You know what the priest says? Steps aside, carry on. Then comes this Levite. This is from the clan that's supposed to take care of the temple of God. Okay, man, that was a jacked up priest, but here comes a Levite. He's going to be kind. What does he do? Steps to the side, walks around him. And then comes a Samaritan. And all the Jews listening would bristle. He's probably going to off him. (laughs) See if there's anything else in his pockets. Because the Samaritans were thought to be half-breeds. They were were of another race. The Jews had intermarried with some of the pagans and so forth. And so we we want nothing to do with them. There's a huge wall of hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. But the Samaritan walking along sees the guy and it says he's moved with compassion. Like his insides are moved. And so he comes over, puts his own clothes on the guy, puts him on his own donkey, 
carries him off, putting wine and oil on his wounds and everything, takes him to an end, cares for him the best he can. He's got to go on because life actually has demands. But he takes out two days' wages and gives them to the innkeeper and says, take care of him, and I'll come back later, and if it costs any more, I'll pay for it then. And so everyone listening is like, the Samaritan did that? That's crazy. And Jesus says, tell me, who is the neighbor? The guy's like, well, I guess the one who showed mercy. Rightly so. And so when we think, who are we to love? Who are we to see the image of God and that we have all been made in the image of God? And so if we have a deep, profound love for God and we see the image of God in any human, it should move us to compassion to mercy, regardless of how different they may look or what differences there may be. No, no, no. We are moved by love with compassion. We step in at great cost to ourselves because we don't have to be afraid because we are loved. So we love. This becomes the gospel incarnate applied. We can see how we are to love each other see the way that the gospel has reoriented us to not live in fear, but instead to invite everyone in. This is the beauty that God has invited us into, a life without fear, a life of love where he has taken away the wall of hostility. He said, we all belong here together. So invite them in. So skeptic, seeker, stumbling, or doubting saint, I would ask if you would believe this good news. Life can be like this. Follower of Jesus, I would ask who you can share this good news with. And even more pointedly this week, I would ask you to consider the Good Samaritan. I would ask, who makes you uncomfortable? And this week, actually this week, will you go to them at great cost to yourself and invite them in? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. But in a, in a text that can be troublesome for so many of us um, because there's so much hurt on every side. God, we, we pray for repentance. We pray for unity of your people. God, would you make us a church that is marked by love for you and love for each other? Because Jesus, that's what you said is how the world would know us as followers of you. Thank you. That when we were the outsider, when we were the alien, when we were hostile to you, you instead showed us mercy. You've come to us in grace. So we praise you, we love you, and we thank you for all these things. In the name of Jesus.